This book in particular is given to us to help us in the, the aspect of the Gospel called assurance. A major theme is given at the end of the book in chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to Christians. What particular purpose that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's, it's written to give Christians assurance, which is the joy of the Gospel, right? People who do not have assurance of their salvation are fearful of, of judgment, are unsure of where they'll spend eternity. They just can't have that confidence. But the Bible does tell us that we can have confidence and we should. I, I visited a Macedonian minister. I'm Macedonian in part from my mother. I just wanted to see where he was theologically. And in our discussions, I mentioned the assurance of eternal life and he didn't like that. He said that we're, we're uh, overconfident to think that we can have eternal life. And I said, well, if the Bible didn't teach that, then I would agree with you. But the Bible says, and I think I quoted this verse and other verses, that we may know that we have eternal life, not doubt it. And the knowledge of eternal life, the assurance comes from the fact that Christ died for our sins and that He never loses one of His own. We can't even pluck, you know, the Bible text that says, no man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I had someone tell me, well, we can pluck ourselves out. I said, well, don't you, aren't, are you included in the no man or not? They thought as if it was um, anybody else but them. But all of us are included in that text. And also in First John, you have the text that say, he that is born of God dot, 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 gives us the assurance that a person is born of God. Now, we don't need to be assured of our physical birth, right? Because we can see our hand, we can feel pain, we can observe a birth certificate, we can ask people who are around. We, we know we were born, but spiritual birth is invisible. And there are those that can pretend, and the Bible talks about Antichrists pretend Christ, and there are also Christians that are pretend. The Lord talked about those in the last day will say, Lord, did we not know you? In other words, did we not do these things in your name? He said, I never knew you. And obviously, he's saying, You never really knew me savingly. So it is important that we, that we, uh, have assurance if we're indeed converted. If we're not converted, we don't want assurance because it's false assurance. And so many, like those in the last day, will have had false assurance. You know, I remember going to a, a, a hunting um, dinner and they always had a, a very good hunter give a talk at the end. And this was at a church and so they usually tried to get someone that was a professing Christian. And, and uh, I'll never forget, the man made this statement. I guarantee you, if you pray this prayer, that you'll be a Christian. 
You may have said something different, like you'll be going to heaven. But I guarantee you, if you pray this prayer, in other words, you'll be in. And that Dan and I were sitting together. We said, "No way. This is works righteousness, and this is uh, this is deception." Because um, you can pray great prayers and not be a believer. Well, chapter four and verse seven gives us another one of those statements where it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God. There's that statement again, born of God. You have that statement six times in 1 John. Sometimes it's at the beginning of the verse, sometimes it's at the end. In this verse, it's at the end. He that loveth is born of God. And it's at the end of verse 1 of chapter 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But notice in chapter 5 verse 4, born of God is before the evidence. Whatever, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. So you see how it can either be in the beginning or the end of the sentence or the statement. But each of these is saying uh, a person that's born again has this evidence. Okay? And the evidence is normally something that can be seen. Although the, the actual new birth is something that's invisible, yet it's something that can be evidenced. And the first time it was mentioned is, was in chapter 2 and verse 29. The person that is born again doeth righteousness. It's a simple statement saying that he has the momentum of obedience. A person that is saved begins to obey God. And as we're taught God's Word and God's will, we, we begin to gain momentum. And, and uh, it's a positive thing. He does, we do righteousness. It doesn't mean that we never sin. Doing righteousness is present tense. It's, it's, it's about someone that's on... You know, it, the momentum is obedience now, not disobedience. Prior to salvation... He that is not born again doeth not righteousness. It doesn't mean that uh, a, a non-believer can't do a moral deed, moral uh, act. It just means we, are, we have the momentum of disobedience. Chapter 3, verse 9, he that is born again, there's a negative there, does not sin. Now again, it's not talking about sinless perfectionism. It's a present tense. The momentum is not disobedience. Sin is disobedience to God's Word. There are a lot of synonyms for sin. Sin, transgression, iniquity, debt. Remember Jesus talked about forgive, uh, for we're to pray forgive our debts. Well, um, the doeth, again, is present tense. So a person that is just a repetitive liar, for instance, is not born of God. A person that is a repetitive thief or uh, idolater. Uh, the Bible says those that are the liar, the idolater, and the murderer shall not have their part in the lake which burneth in fire and brimstone. But a believer is someone who you can depend on to tell the truth. You can leave your wallet in front of him all day long and he's not going to steal money from it, for instance. Now that doesn't mean believers don't fall. We do. I saw a clip the other day. They were just 
testing people. And this young boy walked in a store. He was just going to buy a bag of potato chips or something. And, the, and they planted a nice new cell phone on the counter. And uh, he, he was looking at whatever was there. And he saw it and he picked it up and he, he brought it over to the man. And he says, uh, someone left a cell phone. Well, that was very nice of you. And the man put it in his bag along with his treat and handed it to him and he walked out and they have the camera and the boy was outside and he looked in the bag and he saw the phone again and he turned around and went back in the store and said, you put, you know, this, the phone is there. And finally the man said, it's yours, son, you passed the test. And he just broke down crying. Um, that's rare, isn't it? Well, that describes, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if that boy was a believer. You can be an unbeliever and be honest in that sense, but a, you can trust a believer with your cell phone, with your wallet, uh, with your cat, or with your dog, <laughs> uh, with your car. You can trust that, that a believer is going to uh, be honest. But, um, again, it doesn't mean we don't fall. You and I know our sins, and, and, and many of them we don't know. And, and uh, if the Lord would would uh, post our sins on a blackboard, we would be embarrassed and we would not have to be in the same room with those who are observing it. But the momentum of obedience is, is uh, evident in the believer's life. And the momentum for disobedience has been halted. And now the third statement is in verse 7 of chapter 4. How do you know someone is born again, born of God? It says, He loveth. Now you say, what does that mean? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So a person who's born of God, and we would call, say, born again, saved. There's a lot of different synonyms for a person who is a Christian. But here, John's talking about spiritual birth. He, he likes to use that term. Remember in the old, in his gospel, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He quoted Jesus, and he uses the the new birth illustration of a believer. Well, love is an evidence of a person that's born again. Now it says loveth. It doesn't give us an, a direct object, but earlier in the verse it says, "Let us love one another," but John leaves it open there. So the question is, is is brotherly love mentioned or is it love for God? And we would say, yes, right? The point is, a believer loves. He has the capability of having agape love, which is sacrificial love. No greater love that a man can have than a man lay down his life for his friends. Now that's the ultimate. John mentioned it earlier. But then he says, what about the the basic, if you see your brother in need, do you help him out? Do you care? Or do you, are you like the priest and the Levite and you walk on the other side of the road uh, because you're afraid of getting assaulted yourself? But then this good Samaritan comes along and he doesn't care whether he's a Jew or a Gentile or male or female. He's, he cares about the person's soul and he stops to give help. Well, the believer has that heart in him now. Where before maybe we didn't care. Uh, I mean, there there are cities that you can get assaulted and people just watch and film it. Just amazing the lovelessness. And the Bible says, because iniquity abounds, 
Is that the way it's read? Because uh, iniquity abounds, the love of many is waxed cold. Lovelessness. So, John already just touched on brotherly love, but he comes back to it. Uh, At least two or three times he has sections about brotherly love, so that's important to him. Remember, especially in days where they didn't have microtels and you could, you know, places where you could stay. They had inns and some of them were full and a lot of them were cesspools of iniquity. And uh, when a believer is going through town, you want to show brotherly love, right? You, want, you don't want them to stay in a cesspool if you, can, if you have room in your house. So that was certainly important in John's day, but it's important in any day. But remember, John's been warning the church about these heretics that don't have, that don't believe in some major doctrines, and these heretics um, did not have an evidence of true love. They they uh, had a head knowledge of of the Bible, but they did not have a heart, um, a tender heart toward the things of God. And obviously, if you're teaching false doctrine, how can you have a love for people if you're giving them poison? I think you'd agree that somebody who's trying to poison you doesn't love you. And uh, that was the case. John was warning about these false teachers that existed in his day. He had a true love for the people of God, didn't he? And then the last two, I already mentioned, chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 5, verse 4. So you have four positives and one negative. You do righteousness, you love one another, you love God, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, chapter 5, verse 1. You overcome the world, chapter 5, verse 4. Those are four positives. And then doing not righteousness, I'm sorry, you do not sin, you do not do unrighteousness, chapter 3, verse 9, is a negative. But if you look at the five categories, the categories are obedience, you have a momentum to do right, resistance to sin, now, that's, a, that's an interesting and a very important inclusion. It's one thing to do right, but it's another thing to face temptation and face sin and resist it. Do we have a pushback against sin? And that's what he means by a believer does not sin, chapter 3, verse 9. Um, in other words, sin does not have dominion over us. Remember what it said of the Lord Jesus. He would... He would refuse the evil and he would choose the good. You see how those are uh, positive activities? It's not just he preferred not to sin. You know, there are people that prefer not to sin because it's not convenient. Um, I I prefer not to lie here because it's not going to do me any good to lie, for instance. But a Christian won't lie because it's a sin against God. Because... It is against his nature, right? Because it transgresses God's word, because it hurts people. We have all the reasons to resist it, because we're Christians. And thirdly, the the category of love. Now, what does it mean to love one another? Well, to have affection for, to be friendly toward, to want a friendship with that person, to... And the ultimate is obviously you're willing to sacrifice, whether it be time, um, materials, you know, possessions, um, truth. You're you're uh, you're sacrificial. The fourth category is faith. You believe that Jesus is Christ. So, um, 
in the chat, last chapter, by the way, especially John is saying, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Stay in, stay in Christianity, in other words. Stay in the, 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 uh, the river of truth. Don't get away from the truth. Stay in the church, in other words, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and he was certainly a, an apostle. And then the fifth category, you're overcoming the world. Word, the name Nicholas comes from the word overcome. I think what it's saying here is you, you're winning. You're not losing to the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You, you're, you're, you're not losing. You're overcoming. You're, you trip. You, you get knocked down. But you're not succumbing to the world. I mean, all you've got to do is turn the television on and watch the commercials. You've got to have this and you've got to have that. There's, there's a temptation to covetousness, a temptation to, uh, to lust. You know, the, the amazing thing is how people are exposing body parts all over the place. And it's very difficult to avoid any of that. Whether you go, you're on the highway, whether you're going to a store, whether you're walking down the sidewalk. Um, I, I don't envy people that live in climates that, that 365 days a year it's 70 or 80 degrees. Uh, I think it's a, a blessing to live in a climate where people have to dress for seven months of the year. Uh, it's going to be 19 degrees, by the way, overnight tonight. So they'll have the buses started and running. Hopefully, I get there at 6.30. But believers overcome lust, overcome the pride of life pride of possessions and these are encouraging things because they are tangible they are something you can touch and something you can see and feel and John is telling them look be encouraged if you're doing right do right Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said do right though the stars fall though everybody isn't doing it how often do we hear but, but they're not doing this they don't believe this but everybody else believes this. So the Bible says don't follow a multitude to do evil. If you're alone in doing right, then be alone. But you're never alone. God is with us. What does someone say? You and God make a majority, right? So don't be discouraged if you're the only one in your workplace that tells the truth or that loves the Lord. Just just be an example and, and uh, be salt and light. And it says here that, that love, it, the source of love is God. Love is of God. He, he's going to say God is love. Now that's not saying that the only activity of God is love. But I do think it's saying everything that God does for His people is out of love. And that's something for us to be challenged by because God tries us because He loves us, not because He loves to see us squirm. Trials are meant to increase our faith and to strengthen us and to grow us. And God is, is saying that He loves us and, and everything He does toward His people, whether it's growing us, and you know, saving us, growing us, um, teaching us, trying us, chastening us, it's all out of love and and we certainly need to, to
to uh, believe that because sometimes we don't feel it. You know, um, you probably heard this story similar to the boy that that was about to be chastened by his father, and his father said, "I do this because I I love you." And he says, "Don't love me too much." <laughs> And we have to believe that chastening is from a loving hand, a loving father, a loving parent, because we don't want our children to go to hell. Because it says in Proverbs that that uh, you chasten your child and you'll deliver him from hell, literally. So we, we believe God. So love comes from the Lord. And notice how he also says... He that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So he puts love and knowledge together. Because you can kind of have a sentimentalism that has no truth to it. There are people that are very sentimental and very kind and moral, but they're not believers. There's no knowledge of God. You see how he puts doctrine with love. They're interchangeable. And... The knowledge of God comes after the love, too. It says you love God, but you know Him. And you know, normal, many, in many cases, especially those of us who have not been raised in a Christian home, we don't have much knowledge when we're first converted. People have asked, well, how much knowledge do I have of God to be converted? Very little, right? I didn't know that... that that Jesus was God. Well, I guess I was raised in the Roman church, but it, never, it, was, it was a head knowledge. But a person can be born again without knowing that Jesus is God. A person can be born again without knowing there's a hell. Well, not knowing most of the doctrines. But a person who is born again is going to know that Jesus is the, is the Savior. He's going to know that salvation is of God and, and, and He forgives sins and so on. You know basic things. So you begin to love God immediately. Isn't that, do you, do you recall that when you were first saved, how you began to love people who loved God and you began to love God? Though it, it didn't register at first, it was just a natural thing. I was actually converted inside a, a Baptist church in Morgantown, West Virginia in 78. I, I do believe it was, it was sitting in the pew and the Lord converted me. But it was a whole different mindset right after that. It was like, these people are... When I first went in the church, they were strangers. It's like, what did I get myself into? It's just, it, was, it was awkward. It was strange. I'm, I don't, I'm not used to this. They're all happy people. They're not happy people with drinks in their hands. You know what I mean? They're happy people with Bibles in their hands. That was troubling to me. I just was troubled. And I was uncomfortable. I didn't love these people. And when, I got con- when, I, when the Lord converted me, it was totally different. It was like, wow, these people are my friends. And I told you the story that after I had been up in a, in a room in the front with, with uh, Ted Barker, he's now in Seattle, but we went over some of the scriptures of assurance and object of your faith and so on. But when I came out, of the room after about a half an hour there were believers milling around and someone said do you want to come to the church service tonight and you know I was used to you have, you have a 
eight o'clock mass and a nine fifteen and a ten thirty and you know and everyone's the same thing. So I'm thinking, oh, they must have an eleven o'clock mass and a six o'clock in the evening mass too. And I and I said to him, well, I guess I could, I could you I could hear it all over again if I need to. I'm sure it'd be good for me. Oh no no, you don't get it. It'll be a whole different sermon and new song, more songs and it's it's a good way to end the Sunday and from the very beginning. When I was converted, I said, yeah, but I need a ride. I didn't have a car. And there were two or three people that were always driving me to church. And, but that was from the very beginning. But when I went back to the dorm, it was strange. I was comfortable leaving the dorm. Felt strange in the church. After conversion, the church is normal. And the dormitory is strange. And knocked on all the doors. They all came in the middle room. I told them what happened to me. And they all walked out. You're crazy. You know, and two or three people remained and none of them were, I can see, were converted. One of them said, you know, that's not the way to win friends and influence people. You know, you just, you got to be really careful about your faith. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I just got eternal life and I have to be careful about my faith? Oh, for that zeal again. But... Um, Love and knowledge go together. So, but you begin to love and then you begin to, to know God more and more, but both go together. There's, if love without knowledge is sentimentalism, knowledge without love is, what would we call that? We would call that uh, cerebralism, whatever we want to say. It's just head knowledge. It's like the guy that memorized 93 entries in the theological uh, uh, dictionary, the theological encyclopedia, he couldn't think on his feet. And I've heard that quite often, that there are people that just have it all in their head, but if you throw it off and you don't ask them uh, to write a paper, or you don't ask them about the entry they've memorized, you just simply ask them a question. And I remember one man in particular was asked, and sometimes they do this on, on purpose, they ask very simple, basic questions to see if the guy has common sense to see if he has a testimony. And this, this really educated seminarian was asked by a minister or a, a, a professor, tell me your, your uh, testimony of salvation. And he fell apart. Just tell me about your salvation. And he couldn't do it. Most likely because he wasn't converted. He was all head knowledge. It was all cerebral. There was no heart there. I remember hearing a minister say, I'd, I'd rather, uh, I'd rather be a part of people that have, uh, that are alive from their heart up, than than, than their what did he say? Than, than the head up. You know, just saying that the people are just people that are head heady and cerebral, and they have no heart to go with it. John makes a point blank statement in verse eight: He that loveth not, whether it's lo- loving not your brother or your enemy, or the Lord, knoweth not God. So again, uh, a person that can have sentimentalism, but if he doesn't have true agape love, which means sacrifice, which means um, you know, a real feeling of camaraderie among, among God's people. Because he says God is love. Now that's a the statement it can't be reversed. You can't say love is God, and it's you know the trees are God, and the leaves are God, and the and the grass is God. But 
God, it, the essence of God is love. And isn't that amazing? You think of the heathen gods, so many of them are angry gods. You have to pacify them with a sacrifice of money or a baby in the fire or something. They just, when it's thundering, God's angry. Anything that happens that's bad, that God is angry or he's capricious. He's, he may be kind today, but he's um, unpredictable and angry tomorrow. But our God is consistently a God of love. Now we understand that a person that doesn't know the Lord is going to face a God of wrath. But that's not contradictory to his love. He loves souls. And he gave his own son to show forth that he is a God of love. But his love and his, his wrath are not contradictory. Could we say he must punish sin because he is a God of love and a God of justice? Now, how do we know God is a God of love? He can just say he is. can't see him. What are the evidences? He gives us, us evidences that we are, that we love. What is the evidence that he loves? It's right there. In this was manifested, made clear. This is a word used of Jesus. He was manifest in the flesh. So it's definitely referring to Jesus. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Did God give us the ultimate? Love's ultimate is sacrifice. God sacrificed the best He had. In order to save any soul, His Son had become incarnate and to die. The incarnate dies. Is it John Wesley? Charles Wesley? We, we sing that. In, the immortal dies. Now that's a correct statement. God died. Now God's nature did die. The humanity of God the Son died. But still, he, he's one person. So we can say at one moment, God thirsts, and another moment, God knows everything. But sometimes Jesus spoke, he had two natures, sometimes he spoke out of his human nature, sometimes he spoke out of his divine nature. But this is saying that God's love is very clearly manifested in Christmas. That Jesus came. The virgin bore a son. And she called his name Emmanuel, which is saying obviously that that Mary would understand that Jesus was the Son of God. He was God with us. Though it took her a while to let it sink in. Can you imagine coming to the realization that the child that I bore is none other than God Himself? And you notice how eternal life is, is, is mentioned here, that we might live through Him. Remember earlier he said, we have passed from death unto life. So true living began when you and I were saved. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. God loved us so much to send His Son, not only to save us from eternal hell, but to give us 
eternal life. Eternal life that we might live through Him. But lest we think that we were first here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Who acted first in the Garden of Eden when man fell? Did Adam, did Adam run up to the Lord seeking forgiveness and restoration to God? They weren't playing hide and seek, were they? Did he really think that he could hide from God? I think deep down he was thinking, I hope God doesn't come looking for me. I hope he just leaves me alone. God can't leave his creation alone. He's responsible to punish and he's made himself responsible to save. And we have to see that it's God's love that sent Christ. There's a there's a mis there's misinformation out there that people are saying my sin demanded that God do something about it in order to save me. There are people that, that believe that the cross of Christ was God's duty toward us because of our sin. He must you know, we broke it, he he should fix it. And the Bible tells us it's not our sin that necessitated the sending of Jesus. It was God's love that necessitated it. We've got to let that sink in. Our sin demanded His justice, His punishment, His wrath. But He devised a way in which His wrath could, be by, could bypass us upon a substitute. And that substitute could not be uh, one in many choices. There was not this, there was one choice for God to save sinners. One. He couldn't make a new human being and then kill that human being. He had to say to his son, You have to become a man if we are going to save sinners. And it wasn't a matter of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit looking at each other and saying, Which one's going to do this? You understand that. You know, people might ask, well, why didn't the Father step down and become a man? Why didn't the Spirit? Wasn't that unfair that the Son had to do it? But He was the only one compatible to do it. He was a Son. Are you following me? It's not just which one of us and the Son said, I'll do it finally. No, it's as if all of them said, the only way it's going to happen is if I, you, do it. And here He comes. That's just amazing. And we don't read of, of the Son hanging on to the rafters of heaven and saying, no, no, it's too humiliating. It'll be too painful. It'll be too horrible. No, He was willing to come. And do you not see Him going to the cross willingly? We don't ever read of Jesus trying to run from His lot, the decree for us to see Him save, for Him to die in our place. You can see there's so much material packed into this passage. The word, by the way, only begotten means only one of a kind. 
the word begotten in the Greek has the idea of kind and not birth. So kind is really the focus here. He's the only one of a kind. and He's the only, he's the only son of God. But that just to, it just it just emphasizes the, the painfulness that it took, you know, that the father felt. And I suppose it would still be very difficult if you and I had three sons. Well, we have three sons. Didn't even think about, okay, which one would you give up if you had to give up one, Justin? Well, do you know what I'm saying? But, but. Okay, it, was, it, would be, it would be very difficult for one. But if you had one son, you know, it emphasizes it with that woman who, was, who lost her one son when Jesus met the, the funeral procession outside the city of Nain. It says it was the widow's only son. It just emphasizes the grief that she must have been feeling. And Jesus let him live. But the Father said, You die. Don't think it wasn't painful to the Father. People blame the Father for being cruel to send his Son. But it's love. But it was felt love by our Heavenly Father. But again, don't think we were in the we didn't, it wasn't our idea here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. There's a, not just the, the uh, third person singular verb, it's He Himself. You add the, the uh, pronoun as well. He Himself loved us. and sent. The, so the emphasis is on that He did love us personally. And send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember that word back in chapter 2? He's not only the propitiation for our sins, but the propitiation for all the sins of the whole world of believers is the idea. But the word propitiation means satisfaction. Christ satisfied the justice of God. He paid every last punishment for our sins. There's not any sin that is un dealt with. And that includes the last sin that we commit before we go to heaven. There are those that are afraid that if they die having committed sin, that they'll lose their salvation. Like suicide. The person commits suicide, he went into the next world having sinned. So, what happens to the Christian who commits suicide? That suicide was paid for in the cross. But you and I don't presume upon the cross and say, I'll go ahead and sin because my sins are dealt with. No, the believer does not do unrighteousness. We don't presume upon God's grace. We are grateful. That's why the Bible says, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Not there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be presumed upon. And so, if we have the vertical love, it has to flow horizontally. 
Verse 11. Beloved. And notice how John is, is saying this. And it's not tongue in cheek. He's proven his love to them. He's suffered for the church in his lifetime. Remember he was on the island called Patmos. And I'm not sure. It seems like it, it, the Patmos was before First John. So this man is, is a walking, uh, his love walking, his love manifest. Beloved, and this term for his readers is several times in his epistle. Beloved, if God so loved us, most the soul, to give his own son, what is the flow of God's love? It keeps flowing through us. We only sing that flowing through us. We ought also to love one another. So, now he speaks of obligation. Our obligation to love one another. It was exhortation earlier. We ought to love... You know, He said earlier, he exhorts them, let us love one another, verse 7. So there's exhortation of love. But if you and I won't get exhortation, let us be, get, let's get the point of obligation, Right? We ought. See, that's a, that's a note of obligation. We ought. Love that comes from God ver- vertically will flow horizontally. So if there's no horizontal love, there's no vertical love. Right? It goes hand in hand. And that's where he continues. Verse 12, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. That's... Love is, is something that matures, grows. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And that includes us. And I've exhausted my, my mind, my heart, in my mouth, and uh, we'll let that suffice for today. But I hope it's a, it's, a, it's a blessing to us to know that we're not robots. We actually have a heart inside. You know, remember the tin man? Boom, boom, boom. He, he, he needed a heart, but so often I feel like the tin man. You know, just, where's my heart? But the Lord says, I give you a heart. When He saves us, He gives us a heart. And so, let us continue our fellowship with God and sense His love because if His love is flowing down to us, it will flow out from us. And we'll be able to forgive others. We'll be, we'll be able to, to, to thrive and not just exist as Christians. That we won't be victims of our circumstances. By the grace of God, we'll be victors.